Welcome to History and Film. Today we are discussing the 2015 film The Revenant by Alejandro Inritu, who, I don't know if you saw this, does have the distinction of being just the third director ever to win the Oscar for Best Director two years in a row, back, back to back years. Third ever, and he was the first to do it in 65 years when he did that a few years back here. Oh, wow. He, he had also done, so Birdman was the one that he had won for the year before The Revenant. Um, right. He'd, yeah. He'd, he'd also did Amores Peros, uh, Twenty One Grams, and Babel, which are kind of a spiritual trilogy of sorts, where he worked with the same, same screenwriter. So I had definitely been a fan of his before this. Definitely enjoy his films, and I think we discussed off air though. This one's not one of my favorites of his, even though it's good. It's good, and I could definitely see us disagreeing on this one because yeah, I'm a big fan of this movie. Okay, and because and I think it does check off a lot of your boxes. It is absolutely stunningly gorgeous to look at. This is a beautifully shot movie. It's so good. The cinematography is amazing in this movie. Yes, and it definitely has some cool violent things that I'm sure you appreciate more than I do. <laughs> I don't even have necessarily a big knock on it, but I, I don't think the screenplay is exceptionally strong. I think it's just kind of... Bland, and I think I mentioned off air to you after we got done with last week's episode that it's just kind of almost like a torture porn thing where it's basically the script is let's have bad things happen to Hugh Glass for two hours and you have to watch. <laughs> yeah, but the cool thing though is that it's like, I mean, there are some major historical inaccuracies in this movie, yeah, but like as far as the stuff that happened to Hugh Glass, like most of it's true. Uh, there's some big exceptions there too, but yeah, yeah, uh, which which we'll get to. Well, Let's... like the stuff with his son is obviously not true, but like right. the bear attack stuff, like he actually was attacked by a bear. Yes, he actually did have to survive in the wilderness for a long time by himself. Like, no, right, and and that's why his story is such an enduring one for something that happened 200 years ago, which is crazy to think about. This it's almost we are nearing the actually a time of recording. We're darn near uh, exactly. Or sorry, a time of. This coming out, this episode releasing, it will be about 200 years uh, since that that bear attack. Yeah. Let's set up a little bit the world of this time, and then I'll kick it to you to discuss Hugh Glass himself. So again, this is that very much in the aftermath of the Lewis and Clark expedition and opening up the Louisiana Purchase to white settlers moving out west. Keeping in mind, west is what we would consider now the Midwest, where towns like St. Louis were considered frontier towns. And that's why you have the arch that was built in St. Louis, 1960s. But still, it was the gateway to the West because that's what a St. Louis would have been at this time. And just this whole frontier is opening up to exploration. And uh, fur trapping becomes a major, major focus of the economy, uh, which actually it had been since the colonists first came over, even in the eastern part of what is now the United States. But definitely was a big thing in the central United States here, too. I do want to mention the that it does deal with the the fur uh, issue is something called the I don't want to say this tribe name but the Arikara War Arikara War which is the tribe that they call the Re in the film right it, it, yeah. it is the same tribe and early encounters between I keep want to say colonists but we're now in the United States but we'll say the white explorers. The first encounters were civil, as as the Whites and Lewis and Clark and, and, and subsequent expeditions passed through their territory. It was always pretty civil. Their chief went to visit Washington, D.C., even at one point. But while he was there, he 
died and it doesn't seem like there's any record of any foul play he just happened to die while he was in dc keeping in mind it was probably a bunch of white people that wrote down whatever i read <laughs> but the the re i'll call them re just because they call that in the movie and that doesn't seem to be inaccurate um they kind of decided that maybe he had been murdered and oh, it really? didn't necessarily lead immediately to anything but it just kind of shaded subsequent interactions with the white traders and then more and more traders and trappers start coming through their territory and so that combined with the idea that they don't know really what happened to their chief when he went to dc right and they kind of just got fed up with all these whites here right taking up all the furs that was like the main source of their income and livelihood and at some point there's not enough to go around anymore and it ultimately yeah. leads to an attack which is the attack we see at the beginning of the movie. That is historically accurate when the Re are just kind of basically attacking these fur trappers along the Missouri River. That did happen, and then it triggers, and we don't really get to this in the film, but it does trigger what's called the, again, I don't want to say it, the Arikara War, right? which takes about a couple of years before a treaty is, is signed. Uh, we do get a mention of Henry Leavenworth in the film, and he was the, the, the command. he's not in this film at all, but he is the commander, or one of the commanders of the U.S. soldiers uh, during this conflict. He is the same man who Leavenworth, Kansas, Fort Leavenworth, Leavenworth Prison, all that's named after this guy. And then after a couple years of fighting, there was a peace treaty signed, and the U.S. and the Akara never fought again. It was pretty much as simple as that. But, well, that, I mean, there, was, there were no official maybe hostilities between like the Arikara and US government forces, but there were still like attacks by Arikara war parties on settlers and Oh, okay. Even after the the period of this war just made not to the level that initiated a military response. Yeah, because like j- jumping ahead to the end of the actual Hugh Glass's life, that's how he died, was in a ambush by okay. Arikara okay. war party. And that was in eighteen thirty three. So it was like far after this okay but yeah so they weren't necessarily like fighting a war you know officially against government forces but they were still okay they were still attacking people that were coming into their territory my source was kind of misleading then because it made it sound like it was uh there was a non-factor going forward um so yeah in in the film the trapping party has hired hugh glass to be like their scout and again i'm trying trying to debate if we want to go through the movie or go through his life it says it's kind of the movie is his life Let's just go ahead and talk about who Hugh Glass was maybe before we get to the events of the movie. And then we can talk about, obviously, the differences and all that and kind of just take his life and see what the movie did with it. Okay. Yeah. So um, Hugh Glass, since he was not, you know, some like government official and this was the 18th century still, not a lot is known about his early life. And that's I mean, it's it's kind of a, a theme for a lot of these people that we've discussed in this early part of American history, it's like stuff doesn't get written down about them until after they start doing something extraordinary. Right. And then it's like, that's when the interest in this person forms. And then it's like, well, where do they come from? It's like, well, who knows? <laughs> he was born sometime around 1783 in the area around Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh, the office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I said, not a lot is known about his his early life before this expedition. There were rumors or legends that he was kidnapped by Jean Lafitte. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. And was forced to be a pirate for a few years and that he like escaped the ship and swam to Galveston and then made his way, you know, 
up north through the through the Great Plains. Purportedly, he spent time in Kansas with the Pawnee Indians. Yeah, like I said, he he basically was just kind of like doing mountain man stuff or like frontiersman stuff out in the West and then joins this expedition led by General Andrew Henry. The expedition itself was started in 1822, but Glass didn't join until 1823. And like you said, there was the attack by the Arakara Indians. Their response to that attack was actually to burn down one of their villages and like kill a bunch of women and children. So like, It can seem in a lot of the, especially like the American-centric or like white-centric retelling of these stories, it can seem a lot like, well, why are these Indians bothering these white settlers? Like, why can't they just leave them alone? Like, they're not, you know, they're not hurting anyone. They're They're not hurting anybody. It's like, oh, yeah, they are. (laughs) Right. They're just they're just hunting all the furs or whatever. But it's like, number one, they are because they're like in their territory and hunting all the animals that they rely on for their livelihood and to survive. Uh, because you know, keep in mind too, like these fur traders aren't taking the furs like for survival to like make coats to stay right. warm in the winter. They're selling them for money. But the natives are using those animals and all of the byproducts like for everything. Right. So if they don't have those furs, like they can't make their houses, they can't eat, they can't make clothing. Like right, they're gonna starve to death and freeze to death. Right. And they were selling the excess too, but they were also using them for their own subsistence. Yeah. Right, yeah. So as part of this expedition, uh, or while they're on this expedition, on a hunt, Glass accidentally stumbles across this bear nest, den, burrow, I don't really know what to call it. Den, den's a good word, I think. An area where a bear is living, <laughs> a mother bear with two cubs, which anyone uh, who knows anything about being in the outdoors knows if, you're, if you come across a bear and it has cubs, like, you're screwed that bear is very likely to attack you. So he disturbs this bear and the bear attacks him and starts chomping him up, starts clawing at him. And similar, like the attack that we see in the film is probably accurate, at least like the beginning part of the attack. However, he doesn't kill the bear by himself. Like in real life, the rest of his party shows up and kills the bear. Oh, okay. So he is very seriously injured it's not expected that he is going to survive but henry general henry who's leading the expedition doesn't want to just leave this guy behind so they make a litter and they actually carry him for two days oh wow which the film kind of shows that too right until they kind of are like all right this guy's probably gonna die he's slowing us down so henry says all right i need two people to stay here with him basically wait for him to die bury them, and then catch up. And this is after the re-attack, so they are justifiably scared of being too slow in getting out of this area, right? Yes. Yeah. So he's left with a guy named John Fitzgerald and a guy that he says named is Bridges, which is probably, but not 100% known, to be Jim Bridger. Right. Um, in the movie, it is explicitly Jim Bridger. Correct. Which, this is a another little... Another little movie side note in Inglorious Bastards. You stole my thunder. I had it written down. Lieutenant Aldo Rain <laughs> says that he's a direct descendant of the mountain man Jim Bridger, and that's the Jim Bridger in this movie is like a young man who does later on go. Uh, he marries a a Native American woman, and so that's the whole thing about Aldo Rain says. Uh, and I'm not going to repeat the slur, but he says that he has Native American blood in him. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, so 
It's not 100% known because the name that is written down is Bridges, not Bridger, but it's like, it was, that's probably who it was. That's probably who he was talking about. And Jim Bridger was in this area at the time for fur trapping. Jim Bridger was on this expedition. Right, right. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost certainly, but not 100%. Yeah. Right. So the two end up taking all of Glass's stuff and just kind of leaving him to die. Because he didn't, take, he didn't die quick enough, basically. Again, just like the movie. Right. They, they basically expected him like to die any minute. Like, definitely not survive you know days and days and days and so they're like sitting there like waiting for him to die he's like he is not dying so let's get out of here because there's only two of us and we know that we're being pursued by uh arikara warriors and so you know maybe let's hightail it out of here and meet up with the rest of the group this is a very significant departure from what we see in the movie because like i mentioned before uh in the movie Hugh Glass has a son who's half white, half Native American, and there's absolutely no evidence that... Well, he definitely didn't have this kid at this time, and there's no evidence that he had any children ever right, at any time in his life. So the whole thing about John Fitzgerald murdered his son... And that's why he needs revenge. That's all fictional, yep. Right. That's made up for the movie. The thing that he was wanted revenge for was the fact that he was left for dead and they took all his stuff. Right. That was enough back in those days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the, I, gun, the, the, the gun especially talked about like, dude, I need my gun to like survive. And you took that? Exactly. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like today where you could just go to a store and buy a new gun. Like <laughs> that would have been a big deal. So they catch back up with the group and they falsely report that, well, we, you know, there was an attack or, you know, an, an imminent attack by uh, Arikara warriors. And so we had to leave Glass like we didn't have a choice type thing. Glass did not die. He was laid up on, you know, near the the bank of a river. He was drinking stream water and eating berries in a tree that he just happened, or a bush that he was just happened to be laid next to. And that's how he didn't starve to death or die Mm. of dehydration. There's a lot of stuff that's like, we see in the movie, but is like not a hundred percent known to be true, and but like is part of the legend of what happened to him, like the whole like finding a a buffalo carcass that had been like a buffalo that had been brought down by wolves, and he like chases the wolves away uh, okay. and is able to survive on that for a little bit. The fact that he had maggots eat the dead flesh so that he didn't get gangrene, stuff like that. Is that in the movie? Well, not that he. It doesn't show him like actively putting maggots in him or anything. But, like, his wounds are shown to be, like, infected and have maggots in them. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so he does end up with using only one arm and one leg because the rest is, like, super messed up and he had broken bones. He, like, crawls, eventually makes it to the Cheyenne River and fashions himself a very primitive raft and floats down the river back to Fort Kiowa eating whatever he can, drinking water out of the river, and it takes him six weeks to get back. Holy cow. Yeah. So he gets back to Fort Kiowa, and very understandably wants revenge, and finds out that John Fitzgerald had actually enlisted in the army during this time. So he goes to Fort Atkinson, Nebraska. Is he on a horse by now, I imagine, then? In, in I think he's on a horse, yeah. Either on a horse or maybe by raft, because that fort is on a river. So I'm not sure how he gets there, but he kind of recovers, heals up, and then goes... He recovers, okay. 
goes to get you know his uh his stuff back i was picturing him just like getting back on his raft and just kind of still yeah 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 no i i think i i don't know for sure but i can't imagine he's gonna ride his raft that he made with one arm it's crazy no one came across him in those six weeks to like give him either either put him out of his misery or give him more aid that he almost like didn't encounter anybody for that six weeks that it took to get back or not significantly enough so this was like the frontier frontier at this time right it's so isolated yeah and you know it's one of those things too like would he even want to ask anyone for help because well true he might have been trying to stay hidden the people he's most likely to run into are native americans right and so for him as like a white fur trader like right would they help him would they just kill him like he's getting he he could get scalped right 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 and it, it you know for him it's like i'm doing all right like i'm eating enough berries and getting enough river water where like i'm able to survive i just need to like not starve to death long enough to float down this river and as long as i have this raft like i'll get there eventually and he's a scout so he knew where he was going right yeah yeah okay well and he yeah he knew the land and he knew what river he was on and he knew okay i just i'm just gonna go keep going down this river and eventually i'll get to fort kiowa so interesting side note though about uh fort atkinson i've actually been there okay it's just north of omaha nebraska and there's a small town that the fort is right outside of and i have cousins that live and grew up in that town oh huh and so i've been to fort atkinson but that's so that's where he runs back into john fitzgerald and he wants to kill him uh but can't because he's a soldier now and so he's like government property but john fitzgerald commanding officer makes him give him back the rifle and pay i think he gets like three hundred dollars huh and i don't know if that's john fitzgerald paying him the three hundred dollars or if that's like the captain is like hey here's 300 bucks to like beat it you know (laughs) to make it worth your while and get out of here but yeah so then after he gets his stuff back he continues scouting uh continues doing frontiersman stuff and then so basically makes a full recovery from his bear attack yeah i i don't know how much physical impairment but it's not like he was bedridden or like had to be in a wheelchair or something like he was able to be a frontiersman for the rest of his life okay uh until he was uh he in 1824 he was involved in another arikara ambush Mm. him and three other guys were taking mail to fort atkinson from somewhere else and they came across a settlement an arikara settlement and he knew the chief of this tribe and like the chief told glass like hey you know come on in out of the cold like we'll hook you up you know make sure you got a place to stay or whatever and they get into one of the tents and i don't know exactly what the situation was but basically hugh glass saw something in the tent i think it was like some sort like a supplies or something from that would have they only could have gotten from like from white explorers and realize oh these guys are setting traps for us and so he's like hey we're like let's get out of here and they like try to escape run out of the tent it was a trap they they were getting ambushed two of the guys got killed him and one other guy were able mm. to make it out and then nine years later in 1833 he was involved in yet another ambush uh, where he was not so lucky and him and two other trappers uh, ended up getting killed Okay, so he was killed in a re-ambush. Okay, okay. Right. So just to cover a couple more uh, about, you know, differences between the real-life story and the movie um, specifically, you'll notice no one died. (laughs) Oh, right. None of these explorers. Like, he didn't kill General Henry because that guy went on, I think he was, ended up 
being a congressman or something later on. I, yeah, I do have written down. Yeah, uh, Henry died in, uh, in 1832, but like he was also way older than Donald Gleason. He was 48 in uh, 1823. Right, and was not murdered by Hugh Glass. Or, well, you're getting you're mixed up. That's Fitzgerald. Uh, Fitzgerald was never heard from again. Henry was killed by uh, Fitzgerald in the movie, too. Not Glass. Oh, right, 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 right. But Henry, Henry didn't die in real life, either. Well, he's not immortal. He did die nine years later. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't like... At time of recording, he is dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he wasn't, he wasn't killed by anyone. Right, right. He, I think he just died of, like, I mean, well, I say old age, he was like 58, but like, that was kind of old enough in the frontier. Okay, yeah. So, while he did, you know, track down John Fitzgerald and get his stuff back, he did not, it, it wasn't like a, a murderous revenge because the guy was... uh enlist in the army right what and what i heard was fitzgerald was just never heard from again after this incident which is not surprising to me like right that why would he be yeah there's no reason to write about him yeah exactly yeah so yeah henry i guess i had a couple i had a short short uh paragraph on henry again 48 years old when this happened so he was decidedly older about twice the age of donald gleason in, in the film just another frontiersman he's from pennsylvania moved to the tennessee slash louisiana slash missouri area had a reputation of a just honest, straight shooter, like just good guy you could rely on, which is kind of in the film. He's kind of the upstanding guy who's always trying to do what's right. And that is who Andrew Henry is uh, reported to be. He trapped and traded all along the Oregon Trail in the early 1800s. He fought in the War of 1812, uh, which again, the Donald Gleason we see would almost be maybe even too young for that. He was involved in the uh, lead mining industry. And he, he he was married with four kids. Not that that's, I guess, particularly important. But in the film, it looks like he's maybe single and then killed by Fitzgerald. And then there's a Fort Henry in North Dakota. Uh, I mean, I don't think it, it doesn't exist today, but I think the ruins of it are there. Basically, where the Yellowstone River meets the Missouri in North Dakota. Uh, and that Fort Henry is named after this Andrew Henry, even though he was kind of just all over the Oregon Trail area or the Louisiana Purchase area. Uh, what else on, on glass? It was interesting, though, you mentioned he was like kind of living with the Pawnee, though. So he did kind of have a Native American connection, at least. Just not, you know, a romantic one. Right. So he, there are, like, tales, stories of him prior to this. Basically, for Hugh Glass' life, like, all of the, like, big stuff that's, like, documented is all related to this expedition and then his, like, revenge-seeking after. So, like, before that, not a ton is known about him, except for... The fact that he was out west, fur trading, scouting, exploring, and because of that, like, by extension, we know he would have had to have had dealings with some Native Americans. Okay, right. The specifics of that, you know, who, who knows what is, what is true and what is not, because a lot of it's just legend anyway. But yes, he was, at least according to legend, spent time with the Pawnee Indians in, um, in Kansas. So... Basically, the reason he's known today, 200 years, 200 years later, is because he survived a bear attack and went on this little revenge thing. The revenge was just right. less noble than the film makes it out, because it was just like, by golly, they screwed me over and left me for dead, and I'm mad about it, and they took my gun. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Which is not nothing. I mean, that's still a good movie, but yeah. they just added that extra little wrench of Fitzgerald being an extra bastard and murdering his son and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because in... In real life, you know, John Fitzgerald is more of just kind of like acting out of self-preservation and maybe like an opportunist. Like, this guy's probably dead anyway. 
I'm not going to risk my life just to bury this guy, and dead guys don't need guns, so I'm going to take it and roll out. Whereas in the movie, he's like an actively evil villain character. So it's like, it makes a better... It makes more sense and is better narratively to have him have a son who he, like, murders in cold blood right in front of him. And now it's interesting, though, too, is he he wasn't as evil the second time around as I remembered. Meaning, like, he's decidedly self-interested, but he kind of even even talks about, like, hey, he's telling a injured Hugh Glass, hey, just blink if you want me to put you out of your misery. And Glass, after a moment's thought, does blink. And starts to suffocate him when the kid goes up to stop him. And then Fitzgerald is like, dude, shut up or you're going to have all the uh, Native Americans in this area coming to kill us. And so he's basically killing him to silence him in his mind, arguably a self-preservation thing there too. Again, I'm not saying he's a good guy. He definitely made that decision just in case, just to be safe, which was, you know, a step too far. And he even says in the final confrontation at the end of the film, he's like, Hey, we had a deal. The kid was screaming. Like, so, yes, he's self-interested. Yeah. Yes, he's a liar. But it's not pure villainy that's motivating this guy. Yeah. It's just kind of self-interest. Like, with all the furs and stuff. They leave the furs behind. He wants, he wants paid. He's, he even says, like, the guy's like, hey, we got to get out of here. You know, with, you know, live your life. And he's like, dude, what life? I need these furs or I, have no, I can't survive. And it, it, so he's just very kind of a, just a loud mouth, obnoxious a-hole but not evil. But that makes him the perfect antagonist in this film. And I freaking love Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy is oh yeah, so good. So see, that's another thing too. Like I talk about like the effects and the cinematography and stuff in this movie. And like, you know, there's the very famous long take, you know, one take shot at the beginning of the movie during the attack. But like the performances in this movie are awesome too. And it very famously got Leo his first Oscar. Yes, yes. Which he had to climb, he had to get naked and climb on a horse to win an Oscar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, isn't Leo like a? Wasn't there something about him like he's a vegan and he actually ate the raw liver, like the the real raw buffalo liver? Oh wow! So it was like very much like dedication to his to his role. <laughs> but so it was like you know because I remember there being a lot of like jokes and memes at the time like. This is what Leo had to do to get an Oscar. Like, yeah. you know, this is what he had to put himself through to be seen as as deserving by the Academy. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, all all the all the performances in this movie are really good. Um, I did have a little quibble, and I didn't notice it the first time around when I saw this in the theater. Of course, you know, seven years ago or whatever. But I felt like Donald Gleason's accent wasn't great. It was just it was almost too basic. He was just doing a basic American accent. And didn't have any mm. flavor of any particular region. It was almost just like a n- completely neutral American accent that didn't seem to fit with like what Hardy. Whereas Tom Hardy is doing an, an actual yes accent, okay, like a regional accent, and he's yeah. also not American. And so I feel like Hardy right. kind of nailed it, and Donal was kind of just too neutral. But he also, it Tom Hardy is kind of known for his accents and voice stuff for his characters too. Like, that is a a very talented area for him. Right, because that Gleason's accent in uh, Ex Machina doesn't bother me. Of course, he's probably doing the same neutral American accent, right. which works in Ex Machina. I think it's the same standard American accent. And again, I, have, I actually have nothing against Donald Gleason. He's a really good actor. But Tom Hardy's just on another freaking level. It might be one of the greatest actors alive today. 100%. Yeah. 
Yeah, and actually, I, and I liked him better than I think it's a better performance than DiCaprio gives. I think it was just DiCaprio's quote turn to win an Oscar, and this was enough to get it done. That's interesting because I, yeah, I, I think uh, I like Tom Hardy's performance more. I just think like Leo just wanted it so bad. Like he did all of the like the flashy, you know, over the top stuff that has nothing to do with acting. Like his, you know, eating the real bison liver on camera right, right. or getting naked and crawling inside the car. Like that's he just went above and beyond <laughs> in all of the extra stuff to get like the extra I think to get the extra press. That he, we don't know what Hardy did. I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe Hardy scalped himself just to just have lived through that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So stories have been told about Hugh Glass for a really, really long time. So the film was based on a 2002 book, but that book was in turn based on a like 1915 poem. And that poem called uh, The Song of Hugh Glass also inspired a 1971 film and was part of a series of narrative poems. There was five narrative poems written between 1915 and 1941 and actually did not write down the author's name but they were called a cycle of the west and each one was like a song of this a song of that and so there was a, and again poem was almost kind of misleading because it makes it sound like it's something short these were like 100 page 100 plus 150 page narrative poems and one of them was about hugh glass you know basically written less than 100 years after the bear attack because because stories as these had kind of survived and had you know, obviously, were very interesting to people that this dude survived a freaking bear attack. And I did write down one line just to maybe give you a little bit of a taste. I, I kind of I found it on online, and it is kind of long, and it's it's kind of a tough read. But he just kind of rhymes every other line while basically just telling a story. It's almost just like it's a book where he rhymes every other line, and that makes it a poem. So, and and in that one, they have him be like good friends, like BFFs, with one of the guys who's assigned to watch him, and then you know betrays him it must be the equivalent to the bridger character in in the movie but it's someone more his age who he was uh, closer with as opposed to bridger is just more of an acquaintance uh, or just another guy on the on the trip in the movie so after the bear attack his buddy finds his body and then in the poem it says quote the lad beheld a ragged heap that should have been a man a huddled broken thing and it was hugh so just the idea that yep this guy was left behind for dead, and just this clump of flesh was all that remained, but he lived. But also, you kind of see why they would have betrayed him. So I've, I've already mentioned that, that take, the really long take at the, at the beginning of the movie, that, the, like the initial um, attack. There are a couple of other moments that I wrote down watching it that I was like, man, this is so good. And it's, it's what, to me, elevates this movie above what you describe it as, as like, torture porn and like violence for the sake of violence just to, just like little things like uh during the bear attack which is incredibly gruesome and violent there is a shot during that scene where the bear like slams him on the ground and it's like right in front of the camera and obviously in real life this bear is cgi it's not, it's not right. actually attacked by a real bear the effects hold up they were they're surprisingly strong the effects hold up and when he slams him down, the bear's mouth is right there, and the camera lens fogs up. Oh. And I'm like, okay, that's really cool that they, like, put in that extra detail to, like, make it look uh. and really feel like that is an actual 
bear attack. I'm always kind of torn on things like that. Like if you get water or blood splattering on a camera lens, it breaks the fourth wall for me. So I almost don't like it because then it just kind of like the. But I also I say that, but it's also kind of neat to think that the camera is there recording it. So I'm kind of torn on how I feel about stuff like that. Like it is a neat touch. But it also yeah. is a fourth wall break in a movie where fourth wall breaks don't seem appropriate. Yeah, I, I don't know. To me, it just it made it feel a lot more real. It, it made the CGI bear have a lot more like weight. No, and- right. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily disagree. You're right, because it, 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 it almost uh, makes that bear seem like a real bear and even like subconsciously uh, to the viewer. Right. Yeah. Just like just like the uh, the shot where he's getting chased later on in the movie on horseback and he's it's a it's another it's a it's a shot with no cut where we see leo on the horse and he's getting the arrow shot at him and stuff and he's shooting back and then without cutting he like you know they fly off the cliff with the with the horse and watch him and the horse yes oh right the camera goes over the cliff right goes over the cliff and flies that you know the horse and leo fly down into the trees I don't know, like stuff like that. It's like, man, that is so cool. And it's, you know, it's something that like visually no movie had before. I had never seen anything like that before when I watched this movie. And so, yeah, just little stuff like that, that just kind of, just kind of elevated the, the action to something above just, you know, standard frontier action. And I do probably have my little bit of usual quibble with physical stuff. Now they don't necessarily tell you how long he's healing, but to me, it seemed mm-hmm. kind of inconsistent, the level of how his abilities matched his state of convalescence. And it would get kind of like, yeah. so, like suddenly he like he's crawling and then all of a sudden, like 12 hours later, he's running. I'm like, no, it's I don't think he can run. Well, and like the real life story of him is impressive enough and actually happened versus he's yeah, can't stand up, can't walk can't barely crawl to save his life, but then he turns into freaking Jason Bourne right. to infiltrate the French guy's camp. Right. Which, again, that's another thing that I had a little, that I do actually have a little bit of an issue with. I understand that, like, sexual violence was a thing in the West, but, like... Oh, right. Why do you put a rape in this film? As it pertains to this specific story, there is nothing saying that Hugh Glass, like stopped any rapes during his quest to get back to Fort Kiowa. If there was, somebody would have said, like, it. we would know, right. first of all. And so it's like, it just, that seemed gratuitous to me. I'm guessing that's from the novel would be my guess. And then that would, because probably that, it does tie in. Probably. It, it, it is setting up them not killing him at the end because that girl is with the re at the end and kind of gives him a nod. Right, cuz she's like the chief's daughter or something. Right. Which is actually it's the reason they get attacked at the beginning is because they kidnapped her. Cuz we see her at the beginning. Not the very very beginning. It's when the French, I thought the French kidnapped her after they the natives wanted the horses. They had just lost the horses, so they get horses from the French and the French kidnap her as like payment. Oh, you're right. You're right. But yeah, so it's I I'm, I'm guessing that's all in, in the novel uh if if uh if I had to wager but yeah, that just that did to me seem like a little bit of overkill. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, he's like silently sneaking up and like knifing dudes in the back of the head and like being in physical altercation. It's like he wasn't doing that. 
he could barely walk. He right. was floating down a river for six weeks. Oh. In real life. The bait and switch, though, to get Fitzgerald vulnerable at the end is one of the coolest things I've ever seen, though. Yeah, that is pretty that is pretty sick. Right. Puts the dead, dead uh, Andrew Henry propped up on the horse, and then he pretends to be the dead body of Henry on the other horse, which, now, the problem with that is, you're just going to trust the horse is actually going to go where you want it because you're not yeah. guiding it at all through the snow. Right. But then Fitzgerald shoots the already dead Henry, thinking it's class, goes down there to check it out, realizes it's been a switch, and then the cool, again, kind of action-y movie reveal, and he opens up from the dead body spot and shoots him now again. Almost would have been better if that was a kill shot, but they wanted him to actually be able to talk and have a longer confrontation there. But right, cool shot, cool little gimmick. I don't know if other movies have done something like... I'm sure there's been, obviously, corpse switches like that a lot, but that one was particularly cool and well done. Okay, any other movie comments that are... Um, no, but I did see something interesting. Apparently, Hugh Glass is in World of Warcraft. Did you see that? Wait, what? For real? There's a character, I guess, in an... I don't know anything about World of Warcraft. I, well, I've played it before. Right, so it, apparently there's an area called Grizzly Hills. Yeah. Okay, there's a merchant in Grizzly Hills named Hugh Glass who has a pet bear named Griselda. Okay, that's kind of fun. Little little Easter eggs like that. Yeah, I we don't need to talk about World of Warcraft anymore there. But I, I had played off and on. I mean, I haven't played it in a decade, but I, I did actually enjoy it. It's a really good game. But So we always talk about potential candidates for a most interesting person in American history, just like we did a world history tournament. We will probably someday in the distant slash not too distant future do an American history one. And obviously the... the easiest candidate for from this film is hugh glass but i would argue jim bridger might actually be the better choice okay so i'm just going to give a quick little uh rundown of jim bridger here again yes he is mentioned as an ancestor of the fictional aldo rain and glorious bastards which i thought that was so cool so he was just a well-known mountain man slash trapper born in 1804 in virginia uh the same year that the lewis and clark expedition uh happened and that, that kind of paved the way for his whole life so he was 18 slash 19 during the events of of this film which kind of matches the character we see his family moved to st louis when he was eight he never learned to read his whole life at 13 he was orphaned and when he was 18 he was just kind of then in the perfect position this you know kind of guy on his own young man looking to do something was in the perfect position to join a party of trappers along the missouri river you know since he lived in st louis it's very, very possible, or maybe probably improbable, that he was the Bridges mentioned as one of the overseers of Hugh Glass's uh, body. Not long after all this, uh, Jim Bridger was one of the first white men to explore the Yellowstone area and uh, the Great Salt Lake. Fort Bridger was set up in 1842 in what is now Wyoming, uh, and it became one of like the main trading outposts along all the trails heading out west. If you're going to up to Oregon, over to California, you would go most likely through Fort Bridger. I think I've heard, and it's probably in like an Old West movie, like an Old West cowboy movie, but I that sounds familiar. I think I've heard of Fort Bridger before. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's named after this character in this film who's the actual, actual guy, yeah. Now, a little knock against him here, though. Uh, while he was at Fort Bridger and all these people are coming, passing through, all these, all these people journeying west for a better life, they come and restock up resupply at fort bridger and a certain uh donner party was wondering if the shortcut they had heard about would uh be a good idea and old jim bridger said oh yeah yeah that, that'll 
That'll work. That'll work. Okay, you know what? That's that's where you've heard of it. Maybe that's where I've heard of it. Then was is in the Donner Party story. Right. So the Donner Donner Party passes through Fort Bridger. Jim and another one of the guys basically say, "Oh yeah, that that shortcut you heard of? Yeah, that's that should be good. You should be good. It's a it's a good shortcut." And <laughs> it did not work out so well. Yeah. He was a uh, guide during the Utah War between the U.S. government and Mormon settlers, which somehow I had never heard of. What? Yes. So I wanted to actually talk about that real quick, just because we probably won't get to it otherwise, and Jim Bridger is around. So, yeah, there was actually, like, a war between the U.S. government and the Mormon settlers. Now, more of a standoff. There wasn't really any, like, head-to-head battles, but it was more like troops were sent in. And there was a few casualties, but no straight up battles. So Joseph Smith was, you know, from like Pennsylvania or wherever I forget exactly, or New York. And uh, Mormonism had kind of always butted heads with everybody else because everyone didn't really understand what they were doing to the point that Joseph Smith, you know, the first the first guy who founded it all was murdered. So this times that it timed out very well with all the newly acquired territory from Mexico that we talked about last time. Mm-hmm. So the Mormons said, well, you know what? Maybe it would just be best if we moved out into the middle of nowhere where we weren't around to bother anybody else. So that's kind of why they head out west. But they still wanted to be part of the U.S. So they're now in a U.S. territory of, you know, well, I don't know if it was called Utah at that time because, you know, all the borders Present-day Utah, though. Present-day Utah, yes, yes. So, but the Mormons had a tendency to put church law ahead of secular slash federal law. Like, they would mm-hmm. encourage people to go through, all take their grievances to the church as opposed to to the courts. And it was almost kind of like they were setting up, ostensibly, a theocracy within the United States. And so this is kind of what caused President Buchanan to send in U.S. forces to basically make sure... U.S. law is being imposed in U.S. territory, not this weird church law that we don't understand. But actually, the whole thing ended up being a big stain on Buchanan's reputation because he was basically operating a lot on hearsay without actually doing like his due diligence to investigate what exactly was going on. It was just like, send the troops. And it maybe necessarily wasn't at that point yet. Anyway, so that was the Utah war, though. And Bridger was just like a a scout or whatever, or guide for that. He's also, uh, Bridger is credited with uh, discovering, or at least popularizing and making it usable, what is today still known as Bridger's Pass. And I I forget exactly where it is, you know, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains here. But it's a path that shortened the Oregon Trail by 60 miles into being used by the Pony Express, the Union Pacific Railroad, and I-80 today goes through the Bridger Pass. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I I saw Wikipedia even had like a sign. It says Bridger Pass right along I-80 there. He was a scout in the Wyoming, Montana area uh, with U.S. conflicts with Native Americans there. And while we mentioned Hugh Glass did not have any half-Native children, Bridger did. Bridger married mm-hmm. three different Native women. And I don't know if he had kids with all three of them, but he actually did marry three different ones. Uh, he had be- bad health later in his life, ended up uh, completely blind. Uh, he moved back east to Missouri, where he died in 1881 at the age of 77. And what they don't really show in the movie is uh, Bridger had a reputation as like a, a charismatic storyteller. Like, he, just, he was a really popular guy. And, and there's tons of things named after him. If you go to, like, again, the Wikipedia page, the list of things named after Jim Bridger is extensive, to say the least. Anyway, pretty interesting guy. And like I said, arguably kind of did a little more than 
uh, a Hugh Glass during his life. Glass just had like that one main incident with the bear that is fascinating. But as far as overall interesting life, I'd kind of put Jim Bridger ahead of him. And then you did mention William Ashley. They leave him out of the film. He was basically a business partner with Henry. And so it just made sense to combine them. Yeah, I I think for the listeners, I don't know if I was saying Henry a bunch when I meant Ashley. Oh, but okay. if I when I was referencing like, oh, the general, the guy who's in charge of the expedition that they were on, that's that's Ashley. But his name is William Henry Ashley, which I think is why I mixed them up. Oh, right. Well, and Ashley is not in the film. Right, exactly. Yeah, and he's not yeah, he's not in the movie either. Yeah, so they kind of got to combine it. So uh William Ashley real quick, another guy born out east in Virginia, moved to the Louisiana territory before it was purchased by the US. Also fought in the War of 1812, was the first lieutenant governor of Missouri, then lost the election in 1824 to become its the second governor. But yeah, it was all around that time that, you know, Hugh Glass was seeking his revenge and Ashley was kind of running for governor here. And he was Henry's partner in the fur trade. After the events in the film, Ashley uh, actually led an expedition out to Utah, later was elected to Congress from Missouri in the 1930s, and then died that same decade. But there is an Ashley National Forest in Utah and Wyoming that is named after William Ashley. But again, not in the film. They do just kind of combine him with Henry. And it kind of makes sense. It almost be weird to have the character Ashley in the film. It would just, it almost like would not work narratively to add another leader to that party. Like it just, it just made sense to leave him out. I get it. Uh, and my, and then my last note again on, on the, on the fur trade, you get the re-attacking in that 1823, but soon after the events in the film here, by the mid 1800s, fur prices plummeted basically just because styles in Europe had changed and they weren't wearing the demand for furs dropped and so the prices plummeted and kind of crashed the whole fur market and over harvesting had to become a problem we had you know got rid of so many beavers that like it it had a ripple effect of entire ecosystems because beaver beaver dams now allow for all this vegetation to have water we kill the beavers there's no dams the water flows on drought was happening in areas that had previously been kind of dammed up by beavers and so the over hunting kind of just uh wreaked havoc on a lot of these ecosystems uh, there's even something in the 17th century, this is well before the events in the film, but again, just as far as how important to the economy this fur trading stuff was, there was even uh, uh, 17th century conflicts up north in Iroquois territory called the Beaver Wars, uh, just because the Iroquois were trying to maintain a monopoly on the fur trade with the Europeans. And that's even that even ties into some of the James Fenimore Cooper stuff with the, uh, oh shoot, what was the... Huron, the Huron, the the antagonist oh, right, tribe okay, yeah. in that stuff. The Huron were basically on the losing end of the Beaver Wars against the Iroquois and stuff like that. So it does all kind of all all connect there. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes. It is a seventy eight slash eighty four, which I think I think kind of fits with. I mean, seventy eight is not a bad score, but I think it's not as high as a as a kind of prestige injury to picture. Uh, we'd be, but I think it's because of my concerns. I think it's, I think the critics probably share a lot of my reservations, uh, maybe when it comes to that. It's the writing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And just how okay. it's just kind of like two, one note. That'd be my guess. Okay. Kids like, I, yeah, I, to, to me, 78, while it is a good score seems low, especially for a movie that got this much praise. Like it got a ton of praise for like cinematography, the effects, the acting like it got a lot of good critical praise right but i don't know maybe the 78 is 
not necessarily people didn't like it. They're just like, oh, yeah, a bunch of stuff was good, but, like, the story just isn't super compelling. Right. Because, honestly, I mean, because, I mean, I'm, if again, ultimately, Rotten Tomatoes is, a, is an aggregate of percentage of thumbs up versus thumbs down. But I'm telling you that if I were one of the, the voting critics, I'd be on the fence about which way to give it. And so, yes, I probably would lean or recommend, but I could definitely see people just a little bit harsher than me, 22% of them saying, no, nah, I got to stay pass. So that's yeah. probably where you end up with that. So at the Oscars, um, like we mentioned before, Inuritu won Best Director, and that was his second year in a row doing that. It also won Best Cinematography, and the cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki, uh, apparently that was his third cinematography Oscar in a row. Oh, dang. What else did he win for? If you I don't know. I want to go look now because right. I, I have not heard of this guy. Yeah. Deacons is the only cinematographer I can name. <laughs> All right. So just, just looking at Oscars, he's been nominated eight times for cinematography. Huh. And he won. Okay. And they're all working with Inuritu. Okay. The Revenant, Birdman, and Gravity are his three wins. For cinematography, which well deserved. Well, gravity's um, gravity's Quran, but yeah. Oh, is it? Oh, g- god damn it! It's the okay, wrong it's Mexican. One of the other, it's it's <laughs> one of the, well. So I was gonna say it's one of the other three amigos because those uh, Quaron, Inuritu, and uh, uh, Del Toro are the yes, three. Yes. Oh god damn it! <laughs> I feel bad now for mixing them up. Anyway, it's uh, it is tough. Yeah, yeah. Because I I caught myself earlier too because I almost said. I almost said something about, oh, yeah, Inuritu did my favorite Harry Potter movie. And then I remembered, oh, no, that's Alfonso Cuaron. Don't say that. You'll look like an idiot. <laughs> and then I just did the exact same thing right now. I'll, I'll debate cutting it. He also, cinematography, uh, got nominated for Tree of Life, Children of Men, The New World, Sleepy Hollow, and A Little Princess, which I've never heard of. Oh, so he's been working for a while then. Yeah. It's another it's another Alfonso Cuaron directed movie oh yeah okay I, I i think i've heard of it just kind of from perusing him so so is that cinematographer from mexico as well or just happens to work with these guys he is from mexico okay that makes sense he let's see yeah so it looks like he's worked with coron and well he's worked with coron multiple times terrence malik multiple times okay and then his two most recent nominations are both with inuritu okay but yeah so it won for cinematography and then it also like we said, Leo won for Best Actor, and Tom Hardy was nominated, okay. but did not win for uh, Best Supporting Actor. And the film did not win Best Picture because Spotlight won that year. Okay. So that's that's interesting, though, because you have Best Director, Inuritu, two times in a row, and then Best Picture, Spotlight. It didn't, didn't Birdman win Best Picture the year before? Yeah, yeah. And that, those are both Michael Keaton movies. Oh, yeah. So Michael Keaton did win... Best picture in a, two years in a row, even though uh, Inuritu did not. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's all the, the wins that it had. So our time on here a little bit, we kind of jumped a little bit back and forth. This was 1823. Technically with Zorro, we had jumped a little bit ahead to 1840, but the first Zorro film was set in 1820. So we kind of covered a little, more, a little bit more time with Zorro versus this film was kind of just right at that 1823 time period. But next week, we'll be covering a roughly 12-year period, because that is how long Solomon Northrup was enslaved. So tune in next time for our discussion of 12 Years a Slave. <laughs>